you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Daniel chapter 8 this morning, is where we're going to be as we continue to work our way through the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 8. If you don't have a copy of it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there as we read together. But in Daniel chapter 8, we see another vision that the Lord gives to the prophet Daniel, and we pick up in verse 1 where it reads as follows. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli call, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. 
at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is God's Word. In 1989, there was a much anticipated sequel that was released at the box office entitled Back to the Future 2. Right, I'm maybe showing some of you my age at this point, but Back to the Future 2. Now the film, Back to the Future 2, is a sequel obviously to Back to the Future 1 in which Doc Brown builds a time machine out of a DeLorean. Right, so they could travel into the past right, or into the future. But in Back to the Future 2, you still have Doc Brown, except the DeLorean no longer rides on wheels. It now has these jets that turn like a Harrier jet underneath and it flies now. But the basic plot of Back to the Future 2 is that Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, and uh, Doc Brown, played by Christopher Lloyd, they have to travel from 1985 to 2015, which is now in our past, okay? Uh, to 2015 in order to stop Marty's son from ruining his family, right? From ruining his family's future, and, and when they get to 2015, their arch nemesis named Biff Tannen, he steals Doc's time machine and he travels back to 1955 in which he meets himself as a young teenager and gives himself some information that's going to set him up for a future of prosperity and success. What does he give him? He gives him a sports almanac. Right? For the last 50 years... And in that sports almanac is the last 50 years of MLB and NFL and boxing. So every game and every match and every fight, the results, right, the line, the scores, everything is recorded within that sports almanac. And so Biff takes that sports almanac in 1955 and he begins to utilize this information that has come about the future in the present, which gives him the confidence to bet the farm on these games right he's pushing all his chips to the center of the table and say i'm going all in right on mets and cubs right or all in on this great fight of the century right because he has information about what's coming in the future he can act confidently in the present because information about the future gives us confidence to bet the farm in the present wouldn't it be nice to know today what's going to happen tomorrow wouldn't it be nice to know in the present what's coming in the future? Because if you knew what was coming in the future, it would give you greater confidence to thrive in the present. If you knew that you were going into a time of great difficulty or a time of great trial or a great time of great hardship or a time of great suffering, but you knew it would be temporary and how it would turn out, it would give you more confidence in the present to face those realities. 
Wouldn't it be amazing to know that the pain that you've experienced is not going to last forever? Right? That suffering and sorrow, hardship and heartache, they have a shelf life. Right? Wouldn't it be great to know that every evil, every form of evil, it ultimately has an expiration date. And you knew that it was coming. And in Daniel chapter 8, church, we see that God gives a revelation of the future so that when the time comes, His people could not, would not run away in fear or cower in fear, right? Not be overwhelmed by anxiety, but they could walk confidently in faith in the midst of those present realities because it had been predicted, prophesied, it was being fulfilled, and they knew how it was going to end. That's what we see in this vision in Daniel chapter 8. Now, it's important to recognize that the vision of chapter 7 and the vision of chapter 8, which are very much parallel to one another, they both happen during the reign of Belshazzar, who dies in Daniel chapter 5 because of his pride and his arrogance and his self-exaltation. Right? God strikes him dead. Right, the very night that he receives the interpretation of the writing on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. So when Daniel gives this confident interpretation to Belshazzar about the end of the Babylonian kingdom, he's already received these two visions from God in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. Right? And yet God, they're given three and a half centuries prior to the transpiring of these things on the events of the stage of human history. Yet God gives them for a very particular purpose. To arm His people with revelation regarding the future so they can walk in faith and confidence in the face of the present realities rather than being overwhelmed with anxiety and overcome by fear, but rather their faith would deepen and it would develop Right, it would gain some musculature as they saw what had been predicted taking place and coming to pass. And I want to tell you something, church, that the prophecy that we read about in the Old Testament, the things that were predicted that have been fulfilled and they have come to pass, they function to deepen and develop our faith. That's why they're there. And if they're going to do that, there's, if there's a few things that we need to see this morning before we get back to right, the, the application of this particular text. But there's three things I want you to understand about what's going on here in this particular text and how it functions broadly and how prophecy functions broadly in our lives. And the first one is this, that you need to see. You need to see the accuracy of prophecy. If it's going to function to deepen and develop your faith, you need to see the accuracy of prophecy. And to see the accuracy of prophecy, you've got to dive into a little ancient history. Okay, so buckle up, buttercup, right? The predictions of this vision, okay, the predictions of this vision take place several hundred years before the events would happen. As we said earlier, they take place in Belshazzar's reign, who dies in chapter 5. But the accuracy of these visions that take place three and a half centuries prior to their occurrence on the stage of human history has led some liberal scholars to question whether or not Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 were written after the fact rather than before the fact. Right, because they can't conceive of the inspiration of Scripture and special revelation to the degree with the precision that these things would unfold exactly as they were predicted. Because they take place with eerie, eerie accuracy, church. 
consider for a moment in the in the interpretation of the vision we we see that there's or in the vision and interpretation we see there's a ram and there's a goat right the ram we're told in the vision interpretation pertains to the kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians. It would be a ram with two horns, one bigger than the other, and one would precede the other. The smaller one comes first, the Medes. The larger one comes next, the Persians. On the stage of human history, that's exactly how things would transpire in the ancient Near East. And the Persians became so strong that it seemed as if, as the text says, no one could stand in their way until Greece showed up on the scene. And the Greek Empire, represented by the goat right in the text, uh, charges across the face of the earth. In fact, it says it charges so fast that it's not even touching the ground. It looks like it's running on air because the Greek Empire would spread so rapidly throughout the ancient Near East and dominate so thoroughly that it, looks like, it looked like they, it was just walking on air. And it says there was one conspicuous horn that came up from the, between its eyes. right? And there was one great king of the Greek Empire known as Alexander the Great who would conquer the entire known world by the time he turned 32. And at 32, he would die. <laughs> right? He conquered the entire known world in his 20s and by the time he reaches his early 30s, he's off the scene. He's dead. That horn is, what does the text say? Broken. And in the place of that one horn that's broken, Alexander, when he dies, says four other conspicuous horns come up in its place. Not one, but four. Because when he died, his kingdom, his empire, would be split between his four generals who would then rule over segments of his empire to the north. Right? The text says, scattered to the four winds of heaven. Right, To the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. Generals would take portions of land and occupy those and rule over them. Until they get toward the end of that period. And from one of those horns emerges another little horn. One little horn. Right? Not big horn, but little horn. Right? He starts out really small, but he grows to be very strong and powerful. And that little horn that would emerge out of one of Alexander's general's kingdoms would be a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. And Antiochus was a messed up dude. Okay? He was a cruel, vindictive, godless king. And there are several things that the text tells us about Antiochus. It says that he would rise to power and he would grow exceedingly great toward the south, toward Egypt, which he would eventually rule over, toward the east in Syria where he would emerge from, and toward the glorious land, the text says. Some of your translations say the beautiful land, which refers to Israel. So from Syria all the way down to Egypt, he would rule that area of the world for a number of years. For nine years, in fact, from 175 to 164. Right? But the text tells us other things. It says he would be a master of deception, a, a man of great intrigue. Now, he was not next in line when Antiochus III dies. He was not next in line for the throne. His brother was, and his brother ascended to the throne. But when his brother dies, he uses political calculations and manipulations to slither his way in, dispose of his nephew, nephew who would have been the next one in line for the throne, so that he could rise in ascendancy and take the throne. He would rise up, the text says, against the prince of princes. In other words, God Himself. 
He would set himself in opposition to God. On his coinage, we're told that Antiochus, the reason he got his last name, which is not his last name, it's a designation that he used for himself, right? Epiphanes means the manifest God. In other words, he would stamp his coins with that language saying, the God you can see, the God you can lay eyes on, the God who is in your midst is me. He would rise up against the prince of princes. In addition, we're told that he would grow great even to the host of the armies of heaven and throw them to the ground. In the book of 1 Maccabees, Maccabees is an apocryphal work, right? So we don't recognize it as inspired Scripture. It was written in the intertestamental times between the closing of the Old Testament canon and the opening of the New Testament canon. But when it, was, it, it contains much history of what took place in the Jewish people's lives during that time. But in 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verses 29 to 32, you read about Antiochus dispatching soldiers to Jerusalem. And he sends these soldiers to Jerusalem to pretend to befriend the, the Jewish people. And once they earn the Jewish people's trust, he ends up slaughtering them, occupying the temple, and taking over the city of Jerusalem and beginning severe persecutions against anyone who stood in his way to oppose him. In addition, it says he would take away the regular burnt offering and overthrow the sanctuary. In 168 B.C., Antiochus would give orders to force the Jews to worship pagan gods in the Jerusalem temple. He put an end to the regular sacrifices that would take place there. And in the, in the place of the altar, he set up an altar or a statue of a pagan god and forced the Jewish people to come offer sacrifices to that pagan god. And not just offer sacrifices, but to offer swine, unclean animals, on the altar in the temple to a pagan god. After he slaughters all of them. Right? That was in 168 B.C. In 167 B.C., he closed the doors of the temple and the Jewish people could no longer worship there. In addition, we're told he would throw truth to the ground. Again, in Maccabees, we find that Antiochus, he would trample the truth of God's law. Listen to what it records about what Antiochus would do. He says, the books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. So if you had a copy of the Old Testament scrolls or you adhered to the teachings of the Old Testament scrolls, you were condemned to death. He would trample truth into the ground. He would terrorize, in addition, the people of God for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, the 2300 evenings and mornings refers to 2300 evening sacrifices and morning sacrifices. Offerings that would take place both at sunrise and sunset. They would have taken place over the course of 1150 days, just over three, a three-year span. Now, you want to see the stunning accuracy of this prophecy, right? Antiochus sets up the altar to the pagan god in the Jerusalem temple in the ninth month of 168 B.C. Shuts down the temple in 167, but history records that the high priest of, 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 of the Jewish high priest were reconsecrated and reconstituted in the temple, and the regular offerings began once again on the ninth month of 165 B.C. Three years later. He would be broken, but by no human hand. Toward the end of his time in power, Antiochus led an expedition toward Babylon. And while on that trip, he was not killed by 
in battle by a sword or by the poison from an assassin. Rather, he developed a nervous disorder that overtook his body very quickly and he rapidly died. By no human hand, but by another hand. Do you, I mean, is it just me in the room to see the accuracy of how all of these predictions would transpire and unfold? Right? And they do so in that way for a very particular purpose. And that's the second thing that we need to see with regards to if we want to deepen and develop our faith is that not only do we need to see the accuracy of prophecy, but also grasp its purpose. Grasp the purpose of prophecy. See, it may seem strange to us that Daniel would receive this vision about something that would happen several hundred years after the visions would take place, right? Some 350 years And we may wonder why that would be, but the vision, listen, it was not for Daniel. And it was not even for those living in Daniel's day. It was for those who would come 350 years after Daniel's day. Because for those who would read the book in the 160s, right, 350 years post-visions, they would know then that things are not out of control, things are not happening by chance, but all of this was predicted and is now being fulfilled right before our eyes, and we're seeing it play out just as it was said. And in fact, listen, in verse 26, right? One of the, one of the heavenly messengers says to this, he says, the visions of the evenings and the mornings that have been told is true. In other words, this is going to happen, Daniel. It's true, right? All of this is coming down the pipe. But he goes on to say, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. In other words, you've got a ways to go before it comes, but when it comes, you're going to know it's coming because I told you it was coming. Because it's true. In addition, in verse 15, it says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And so he hears these two men talking between one another. These two heavenly voices speaking to one another. One of them saying to the other, Gabriel, tell the man, help him understand the vision. Right? Give him some insight. And he says, I was frightened and I fell on my face. In verse 17, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now, what does that mean that the vision is for the time of the end? We read that on our place of the spectrum of human history and we automatically assume that what he's referring to is the end of this age and the second coming of Jesus. But that's not what he's referring to when it says it refers to the time of the end. As one commentator wrote, he said it this way, the time of the end is a general prophetic expression for the time that lies at the end of the existing prophetic horizon in which the fulfillment would take place, which in this case is the time of Antiochus. In other words, at the time, the time of the end is the end of the events which are being predicted. And that would come to fulfillment. Another commentator said it this way, if we force the interpretation of Daniel 8 to refer to events yet in the future, We will not only miss the main event predicted here, but we will also bring more confusion to the study of the return of Christ. In other words, we're going to jack everything up as we try to think about what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back if we try to make this apply to something that's coming in the future from our perspective. See, the purpose of prophecy, church, listen, let me just go ahead and say it as plain as I can. The purpose of prophecy is not for us to have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and saying, this is this and that is that. That is not the purpose of prophecy. Okay? 
Even the prophecies we have now about the return of Jesus and the end of this age, that's not the purpose of it. But rather, the purpose of prophecy that we have access to is that God would tell us what is going to happen so that when it happens, we can remember He said that it would happen and we can be confident that what is happening is not happening by chance and things are not out of control because everything is happening as He said it would. It's not to go, well, nobody reads the newspaper anymore, right? So to look at the internet and to have our Bible open and go on Facebook, did you see this? That's what this is. Did you see that? That's what that is. Right? But rather, the purpose of prophecy is for us to see these events. That's a pretty good ratio, right? Pretty good ratio. 10 out of 27 verses refer to Antiochus. In fact, I believe that he is the evil king of chapter 7 who makes war against the people of God. He prevails over them. He wears them out. And he changes the law. Right? We saw that in chapter 7. Antiochus was a violent, evil, godless, and unstable king. He would trample the truth. He would desecrate the temple. And he would set himself up as an opponent and in opposition to God himself. And what Antiochus does, listen, is he fits the pattern of many throughout history and in the Scriptures who would do the same. Who would do the exact same. See, there's certain patterns that emerge across the pages of the Bible and history where things that happen on a micro level or in one instance are repeated in other multiple instances. Right? For instance. You like that? Multiple instances for instance. Right? Antiochus is not the Antichrist, okay? The one who would come at the end of the age. But what Antiochus is, is a pattern for what that one would be like. He engages in the same kind of activity, right? In fact, John will tell us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, there are many Antichrists that precede that one who would come at the end of the age. Children, it is the last hour, he says, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, know that it is the last hour. In other words, the Antichrist is coming, yet going to be this person who comes on the stage at the end of human history. He's going to be in opposition to God, desecrate the all those things, trample truth. But there have been many who have come with that same pattern over the course and duration of history, including Antiochus. Right? And that pattern, church, listen... Listen, it's, it started long before that, right? So he's not the Antichrist. He's a pattern for what that person would do. Second of all, there is a temple, right, that was rebuilt under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah's ministry in the Old Testament, right, in which the sacrifices after Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, destroys Jerusalem, ransacks, takes everybody away, right? Eventually, Nehemiah is there and he's praying and God says, go back and rebuild the temple. He petitions the king. The king gives him resources. He goes back. Zerubbabel, they, they all rebuild the temple under Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. All right, so that temple is standing, okay, at, not in Daniel's day, but, but, but it's being rebuilt in that day around that day, but it's standing in this day when Antiochus comes on the scene. Okay? There's that second temple in Jerusalem. So the first one had been destroyed and ransacked. The second one would be desecrated by Antiochus. Be desecrated. So you had a temple that's destroyed and rebuilt, a temple that is desecrated and restored before the final temple would be crucified and resurrected. 
See, church, we still have a temple. It's just not one built by human hands. Jesus says this in John chapter 2, the Jews ask Him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, where do you get off, Jesus? Where do you get the authority to do what you're doing? You've got to give us some kind of sign. And Jesus says in verse 19, destroy this, this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, Herod's temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, there's always been a meeting place between God and man. That's what the temple functioned as. A place where you brought offerings and sacrifices. A place where you met with God. And listen, church, there is still a temple. And all those were patterns of another temple that would come in Jesus himself. He is our temple. He is the meeting place between God and man. He is the offering and the sacrifice that was made for us. So he had a temple destroyed and rebuilt, one desecrated and restored, and then one crucified and resurrected. And then you've got truth being trampled to the ground. There are occasions where the truth will be trampled to the ground before the truth is despised and rejected. Right? Antiochus would burn the scrolls. He would destroy them and kill anyone who held and clung to them where God's truth had been revealed. But listen, Jesus in John 14, 6 would say, I am what? The truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no one who comes to God but through or by me. And yet, in Jesus' day, when he engages with the scribes, when he engages with the Sadducees, when he engages with the Pharisees, in John chapter 8, verses 44 to 46, this is what he says about them. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus says, I am the truth. Right? John wrote in John chapter 1, the law comes through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the truth and I speak the truth and I teach the truth and yet you despise me and you reject me. You trample me. See the pattern there? as it flows throughout the pages of Scripture and human history. Actually, there's a pattern to this prophecy because this kind of rejection of truth, this kind of desecration of God's dwelling place, this kind of opposition to God's rule has been the pattern of all peoples in all places throughout all history from the time of the fall. It started in Eden when our first parents chose Right? to violate their trusting, loving relationship with God and take of the fruit that He had put out of bounds. So their eyes were opened and they realized what they had done. That they had sinned. And they hid themselves from God. It happened in Eden with our first parents. It happened in Israel of rejection and trampling and desecration throughout Israel's history. It's a very sordid history, mind you. Read the book of Judges. Okay? There was no king in the land of Israel. Everyone did what? what was right in their own eyes. 
And then you had kings emerge after that. Some of them would be good kings who would lead people in the worship of God, and some of them would be really, really bad kings who would lead people in worship of other gods and away from God. So there was a sordid history for Israel in which they trampled and they despised and they desecrated. It happened in Egypt, in Babylon, in Persia, in Greece, in Rome. It happened in Jerusalem on Good Friday whenever Jesus was strung up on a cross and crucified as the final temple was desecrated, as the final revelation from God was trampled underfoot. And listen, it happens in your heart and in mine. Because we're all related to those first parents who did it in Eden. It happens in my heart and it happens in yours. There's a pattern of it emerging. And that is why, out of His great love, God sent His Son, this temple, this truth, this final revelation. The author of Hebrews says, in many times, in many ways, by our forefathers, God spoke to us in all kinds of ways. But in these last days, He's spoken to us how? By or through His Son. And the author of Hebrews is going to go on to argue that that son is our high priest and our final sacrifice because of our sin. Because in my heart, I've trampled the truth. Because in my heart, I have desecrated Jesus. Because in my heart, I have fallen into the pattern of one who is opposed to him, just like the Antichrist. And so have you, church. But the good news is, that's not the end of the story. Not the end of the story. Let me tell you why. Listen, what does all this mean? Recognizing the pattern and grasping the purpose and seeing the accuracy. It sounds all like a really good three-point seminary sermon outline somewhere. Right? But what do I do with this? What does it lead us to? And here's where I want to close. What it ought, if, if, if we recognize and grasp and see, then what it leads us to do in the midst of our present realities, insecurities, and uncertainties is to trust God with the menacing monsters of our lives. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In chapter 7, you see these pictures of these grotesque monsters, don't you? You see this bear with three ribs coming out, right? You see this leopard with wings that cause it to fly across the earth. You see this great super beast, right? With this massive horn that is so terrible and frightening that Daniel doesn't even have words to describe it. It's like some alien that just landed and built the pyramids in Egypt or something, you know? Right? But it's like, that's what it's like. I can't even describe it. There's nothing I can compare it to, right? And they're menacing, terrible fear-inducing monsters. And I find it very interesting and somewhat amusing, actually. But when you turn the page to Daniel chapter 8, those menacing monsters are now bleeding domesticated animals. A ram and a goat. Right? I could probably do better, but I didn't practice. Right? But that's what they are now in Daniel chapter 8. Right? There's these, these bleating animals who roam the mountainsides. 
some of which who are dependent upon shepherds to lead them to find something to eat or else they would starve to death and something to drink or else they would die of thirst. Right? So they are... What is terrifying in chapter 7 becomes very domestic in chapter 8. Listen, in other words, the monsters in chapter 7 are under the sovereign jurisdiction of God. He's leading them as a shepherd to fulfill His purposes. So don't cower in fear, but be confident and full of faith in the face of those monsters. In the face of those beasts that threaten to overwhelm and overthrow you. I can remember as a child, let's get real practical this morning. I remember as a child, I'm terrified of the dark. Okay, I was so scared of the dark. In fact, I was so scared of the dark that there were some nights in which the lights would go off in my room when it was time to go to bed, right? And uh, there would still be kind of, you know, light from the street lights shining through the window of my room and it would cast light on certain things in the room and it would create these shadows in the room. And I, I, I can vividly remember one, one night I could have sworn the shadow was growing and it probably was, right? That's just, but I could swear it was growing in the corner. And as it grew, I could see its hair growing, right? And I could see its claws and its fangs growing. And I could see its teeth snarling, right? And I could, it's just like, I, I could almost hear, right, what was going on. I probably watched a little too much, like, unsupervised television as a child. Saw all kinds of things that terrified me that I shouldn't have seen, right? But, like, like little dolls sliding, slicing your Achilles when you go to bed at night. All that kind of stuff, right? I'm, I'm thinking this, this terrible monster that is growing in the shadows in my room. And I remember one night getting up and going in the living room and just pleading with my mother, let me stay, please, let me stay in here. She wouldn't. She sent me back to my room. And I went back in the room and I laid in bed all night long, terrified of the monster in the corner. But I'll tell you what, church. The next morning when the sun rose and the light filled the room, you know what it did? Dispelled all the shadows. Everything that was hiding in the corner was now just a bookcase. It was just a, 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 a dragon monster toy that was over there in the corner, right? Casting that shadow. I could see it for what it was because the sun had risen. And I'm here to tell you this morning, all I'm trying to say to you at church is that this, is because the sun has risen, the monsters that you believe threaten your very existence are nothing but shadows. Because the sun has risen, it has cast light on those things for what they are. They are not autonomous authorities who reign and rule over the face of the earth, but they are merely rams and goats. That's what they are. See, this Jesus who was crucified in our place, the temple that was desecrated, the truth that was trampled, the one who was opposed, despised, and rejected. He was crucified and buried and raised on the third day. And in His resurrection, the sun has risen and light is shining. And one day, listen, one day when He returns, because He will return one day. That's not what this text is about. But He will return one day. The rest of the Bible affirms. And when He does, that light is going to shatter Every single hollow, shallow shadow and fill it with the substance of His glory. 
So there's no reason to be afraid of monsters. But our question is the same question of those two heavenly hosts, right? How long? How long? How long until this transpires? How long until this comes to pass? That's what we want to know as well, isn't it? I don't know. And anybody who tells you they do is selling you a false bill of goods. Because I don't read the Bible in this hand and Facebook in this hand. Okay? But one thing that I do know is that until then, the sun is risen and His light is shining. And part of what that means is this, is there's an expiration date for all evil. For all evil. Listen, I remember going through our refrigerator and our pantry a couple of years ago and cleaning out stuff that had expiration dates of like three years before. No judgment, right? Judgment-free zone right here. Like pulling out pickles. I don't know if that can ever really go bad, right? Vinegar and salt and cucumbers. But pulling out all kinds of stuff that had gone bad because it all had reached its expiration date. You know what you do with something that reaches its expiration date? You throw it out. And one of these days, every form of evil is going to be thrown out. There's an expiration date for abuse, church, of all kinds. For the bullying and abuse of authority by those who are bigger and stronger and beratement by those who are in positions of authority to make you feel small and insignificant, there's an expiration date on that. There's an expiration date for racism and ethnic cleansing and sex trafficking. All of that's coming to an end one day. There's an expiration date for drought and famine and earthquakes and wildfires and hurricanes. There's an expiration date for colic. And some of you new parents, you're like, praise Jesus, right? The baby's going to stop crying at some point. There's an expiration date for Crohn's and for cholera, for COVID and even for cancer. There's an expiration date for domestic terrorism. An expiration date for international terrorism. An expiration date for cyber terrorism. And there's an expiration date for the Taliban. It's going to come to an end because all of evil has an expiration date. There was an expiration date, listen, for the previous administration in this nation, praise God. There's an expiration date for the current administration in this nation, praise God. And there will be an expiration date for the future administration in this, this nation, and praise God for that too. Right? It's all coming to an end. And so when those monsters grow in the shadows and in the corners, there is no reason to throw your hands up in panic. There is no reason to cower in fear. There is no reason to be overwhelmed by anxiety. But you look at the accuracy of what God has predicted. You look at the purpose for which He has predicted it. And you see the pattern as it unfolds over history. And you say, God has said this would happen. So I'm going to walk confidently in faith knowing, knowing that it's coming to an end. Because it's got an expiration date. So listen church, no matter what monster threatens you, I want you to know that the sun has risen 
that his light is shining. And that if you will see all of life through that prism, then all of a sudden those monsters in the shadows, in the corners, they look like bleeding farm animals that you see at petting zoos because they cannot ultimately threaten you. See, the greatest monster you and I ever faced was that of our sin. And that has been dealt with by the Son. So see all of life through that prism. And trust God. Trust Him. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we know that at times anxiety can rise within our hearts. We know that fear can overwhelm our souls. We know that it can sometimes feel like waves crashing against the rocks. But God, we are thankful that you've given us in the person of your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit confidence and faith to know that no matter what tides rise against us in this life, that one day the earth is going to be filled with your glory as the waters the sea. And those tides will recede. Those waves will stop crashing. So Father, help us not to be overcome. Help us not to be overwhelmed. But as your people seeking to live with a durable discipleship and a faithfulness in the midst of difficult days, help us not to cower in fear. But to stand confidently in faith because the sun has risen and his light is shining. And just like Antiochus, every evil ruler has an end. Just like the suffering of your people 160 years before the birth of your son, even as we suffer on account of our faithfulness, faithfulness and fidelity to you as we cling to you in the midst of dark days. Help us to see all of our life through the prism of the light of Christ. And to believe there's an expiration date for everything. All the sin and sorrow and sadness because of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.